Welcome to Always Andersonville, the podcast. I'm Laura. And I'm Joelle. Today, we are joined by Al Liu, Vice President of Coffee at Colectivo, the Milwaukee-based coffee company recently opened its largest location in Chicago at 5425 North Clark in Andersonville. Collectivo provides house-made coffee, tea, seasonal drinks, breakfast items, and more to patrons, and is well-known for its bold designs and customized approaches to its cafes. Welcome, Al. Thank you for joining us. How are you today? Great. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Well, we're so excited to have you here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. I am a Milwaukee native, uh, but I've uh, had the fortune of living around the country and in several uh, different countries as well. And I uh, started with the company back in late 2000 and uh, worked there for seven years when it was called Altera. And I was the director of culture and communications Then in early 2008, I moved to Seattle to work for a specialty green coffee importer and did that for over eight years and then moved back to Milwaukee about two and a half years ago uh, to take on the role of vice president of coffee. And uh, it's been great to, to come back to the company and also to be part of the expansion into Chicago. And where did your interest in coffee stem from? Uh, that's a funny question because before I started working in coffee, I was not a regular coffee drinker. Very occasionally would have a cup and usually after dinner with a lot of milk, probably a pack of sugar. <laughs> and uh, But I had just come back from the Peace Corps in uh, the fall of 2000 and I served in Bolivia. And although I did not work in coffee in the Peace Corps, my best friend in the Peace Corps did. And so when I went to visit him, this was in June of 1999, it just happened to be during the harvest season. And I got to see coffee being picked and processed and all these things that I had no idea that coffee had to go through to even get to the uh, to export form. And so it really opened my eyes to coffee. And, and it was during that time that the specialty coffee um, concept really started spreading across the U.S. And so I, it was just kind of a uh, nice coincidence that I uh, was exposed to this and needed to start working and, and starting a career. And I just kind of fell into coffee. And what do you do as vice president of coffee? My main responsibility is to actually buy the coffees that we roast uh, and sell And most of them come from Latin America, from Mexico all the way down to Peru and Brazil. But we also do source from several countries in East Africa. But our largest origin actually is Indonesia, specifically Sumatra, Fairtrade Organic. And so the coffees are harvested at different times of the year, depending on the country. So I'm always kind of buying... um, something new, something that's about to be uh, what we call new crop. And so right now at this time of the year, the harvest in Central America, Mexico, and East Africa is just starting, uh, November really. And so I'm getting offers on, on coffees, new crop coffees from multiple countries in those regions. Um, I also supervise the entire coffee department, which consists of basically two parts. One is the roasting operations. The other is our espresso training and education. So we 
uh, have an extensive team uh, working uh, to roast the coffee, but also to train Collectivo coworkers as well as wholesale accounts on barista um, technique. And then I also am heading up our new drink innovation, which is something that we started about a year ago and coming up with drinks to serve in our cafes. Uh, there's a lot of development and testing that needs to uh, that need to go into the to that whole process. And uh, it's been a lot of fun because we've been able to to experiment with different flavor combinations, flavor profiles, do some testing with our customers to see what they like. And, uh, but it's an ongoing process. So it's, once we finish one drink, there's always the next one to start working on. Yeah, at this location, I saw you offer um, a grapefruit espresso, espresso drink. Correct, and that is one of the drinks that we uh, included in our new cold drinks menu that we rolled out uh, during the second half of the summer. And so we will be introducing a new menu in November that will be a mix of uh, cold and hot beverages. And so we're always kind of looking at the the beverages that sell well and wanting to continue those and then introducing uh, new drinks, um, especially when the weather changes and people aren't uh, drinking as many cold beverages as they would in the summer. Well, Al, you opened your third Chicago location in Andersonville this September. What makes this neighborhood an ideal location for Colectivo? I think Andersonville, just based on my experience here, really is the kind of neighborhood that we not only like to be in, but I think um, is a great fit for our culture, for our brand, uh, very neighborhood-oriented, local businesses, uh, people on the streets, in, regardless of the weather, and just a very nice neighborhoody feel. Um, in Milwaukee, we have 13 stores in the metro area, and um, many of them, most of them, are in distinct neighborhoods and where people can walk to the stores. You see a lot of um, kids, uh, strollers, uh, people uh, who live in the neighborhood and can work remotely. They will. Uh, often set up a camp in, in our cafes during the workday. Uh, people kind of running in in the morning on their way to work to get their coffee. Uh, people coming in in the evening to as, as kind of like a uh, third place, as cafes often are known. Um, so it's not work. It's not home. It's, it's a third place you can go that, that makes you feel comfortable. And so I think Andersonville really fits that in so many ways for us. It's just a great neighborhood for us to be in. And what's the look and feel Collectivo is trying to achieve in its cafes, especially in the Andersonville location? So Collectivo, for many, many years, basically since the inception of the company 25 years ago, uh, we have always tried to work with existing structures, uh, go into places and not really change a whole lot and rather preserve the look and feel of the space. And this particular location that we're in, right on the corner of Clark and Rasher, is gorgeous because it has the original Cream City brick um, walls. And that's actually a material that's very, very common and popular in Wisconsin because uh, there was a, I believe, a quarry that supplied material um, of that color and type to make those Cream City bricks. So a nickname for Milwaukee, which... Chicagoans may not know is actually Cream City. And so to have that um, a space here in Chicago 
with that same building material for us is very fam familiar and very um, cozy. I, I walked into that cafe for the first time and was just in awe with that, with those walls, um, by those walls, because they're so familiar to us, but I didn't expect to find them here. And, you know, it was interesting because Laura and I just had a meeting there at Collectivo, and I love that term you used, the third space, because it really was packed. I mean, it was it was really people were there to work, to meet people, to have meetings like we were, and we really were noticing that warm feeling where it just feels like comfortable and cozy, as you mentioned, and you could really just stay there all day if you wanted to, right? Sure. Um, so, yeah, that brick's amazing, but... Um, how has the first month been and what was the process like coming into the neighborhood? I know originally there were plans to open much earlier than September. Sure. And because our retail spaces are very unique and, um, we're working with existing structures, uh, most of the time rather than, uh, tearing something down and then building it from scratch, there are often are a lot of challenges with those spaces, whether it's, um, having to try to configure uh, the the service area, the, the registers, the food prep, uh, storage within those spaces. And so um, I think just there are a lot of challenges, uh, some challenges with the construction, uh, the build out of this space, given the, the sort of existing layout of the building and what we had to do to kind of work around that, to preserve it, but also to to make it functional for us. And so that's um, not something that we always can foresee. And fortunately, we were able to uh, work through all that and get the store open. And it's been great to to actually see the, the doors open and have customers come in. September also marked the 25th anniversary of the founding of Collectivo in the basement of a Milwaukee warehouse. Can you tell us more about the history of the company and how it has evolved over time? Sure. So the company was founded in 1993 by uh, three men, Ward Fowler, uh, his brother Lincoln Fowler, and their friend Paul Miller. And Ward and Lincoln had a business building um, custom uh, speaker cabinets, high-end speaker cabinets. And Paul had a business uh, selling uh, Milwaukee-themed clothing items as well as sheepskin-lined slippers. And they shared, the two businesses shared uh, storage space in the same warehouse. And so they got to know each other and started talking about how good coffee was very difficult to find at that time in Milwaukee. So they came up with the idea of starting this roasting business. And the following year opened the first retail location, which was in a shopping mall, coincidentally, not far from where I grew up. And um, I actually remember kind of, uh, running into that location my senior year of college, so it was December of 94, I was back from Washington, D.C., and that store was already open, and I just had no idea what it was and uh, didn't really pay much attention to it and, of course, didn't know that uh, six years later would be working for the company. So um, at the time uh, when I started in late 2000, Collectivo had four stores, and so our main flagship store was where we did the roasting and the packing and where all the offices were. So um, the other three were really more kiosks. Two of them were in shopping malls. One was in the tallest office building in Milwaukee. And starting in 2000, 
two, we st- we uh, began expanding. We opened a cafe in a historic building right on the lakefront in in Milwaukee, um, in what's a building that's called the the pumping station. And then just from there, continued to expand. And so this store in Andersonville is actually our 19th store. And where did the name Collectivo come from? So Collectivo is the word that's used um, to to for public buses in Mexico, and uh, particularly southern Mexico. And the idea behind the name Collectivo and the image of a bus is that we want to have anyone and everyone join us in a coffee journey. And so the doors are always open. Anyone can get on the bus, so to speak, have a coffee experience with us, regardless of your background, uh, who you are, your familiarity or lack of familiarity with specialty coffee. Uh, We can cater to anyone and we like to. We don't think of coffee as being a sort of precious um, object or, or product. It's not something that only certain people can enjoy because they have to know a certain amount about it. And we can uh, and do cater to customers of all of all stripes and people who don't really know what specialty coffee is or who may be new to it, all the way to people who are very familiar with it and have very specific uh, taste preferences. And so we we engage with those types of customers on a daily basis. And I think that's really been our our mission and our spirit uh, for all this whole time for 25 years was to make specialty coffee, really good coffee accessible to everyone. And so the Collectivo name and then the use of the the bus as as one of our logos really speaks to, to that approach, but also to um, origin because these coffees aren't produced locally. They come from faraway places. And um, even regular coffee consumers often aren't fully aware as to the origin of of these different coffees. And even if they know they like, let's say, Guatemala over Colombia or Kenya over Sumatra, um, we really try to focus on origin to um, emphasize the fact that these are produced by people. Um, coffee producers aren't robots. You can't program them and expect them to produce the same quality of coffee at the same price year after year um, they're, they're people with traditions and cultures and heritages and identities. And the n- great thing about coffee, one of the things that's really kept me in the business for so long as, as it has, is the connections that coffee enables us to make as um, a roaster in the upper Midwest with producers around the world and in dealing with all these different people over the years, we've become friends. And so that's, um, that's really one of the, the best parts about being in coffee is just all the connections that you can make with people often with very, very different backgrounds in, in very far away places. And so we, we really try to celebrate that as much as we can. And what is the difference between direct sourcing the coffee and importing it? Are there any places you'd like to source coffee from that you haven't already? So we don't actually import coffee directly. We use the services of a number of green coffee importers around the country and actually one that's in Canada. Uh, And that's to provide a number of services that they've specialize in and that we don't, such as the logistics of getting coffee shipped from the producing country to the U.S., um, also the warehousing, um, the financing. There are just a lot of steps that 
happen even after the coffee is uh, produced and prepared for export these things need to happen to get the coffee here so we don't do any of the importing ourselves but we um, operate or we buy coffee from a number of different countries probably about 15 to 17 some of them um, we only buy smaller amounts and feature those coffees for a shorter period let's say uh, just one week up to about three months and then there are other countries of origin uh, whose coffees we have year-round and so we all often have a lot of options people are offering us coffees from a number of different places and it's basically like we just pick what we like and what we have space for and it's it's a lot of fun but it's also it can be a little uh periodically overwhelming because there's so many options and there are things that we want to try but we may not have space for them or um we're, we're, our calendar is booked for x number of months ahead so it's a good problem to have but I wish we could feature even more coffees than we already have. And we already do have a lot. And how often do you find yourself traveling? Ooh, well, this has been a busy year for me. And fortunately, I uh, essentially dictate when and where I want to go. But there are origins that that we need to visit more often than others um, because of the type of relationship we have and or the the volume of coffee we're getting from that origin. Uh, just this year alone, I've been in Mexico, Guatemala, Costa Rica, Honduras, Brazil, Colombia, and um, I put my Indonesia trip off until January, February, which is convenient because it's cold <laughs> in Milwaukee and Chicago, and I get to go somewhere warm. Uh, I need to probably go back to Rwanda sometime next year, uh, but hopefully I'll be traveling a little bit less, but I still also have to do Guatemala. I'll probably have to do Colombia again. So the nice thing is that these trips can get spread out based on the different harvest cycles and the harvest period for, as I said, Mexico, Central America, East Africa is during our winter. And so January, February, March are usually busier times for me for travel and I certainly don't mind escaping. And what would you say has been the most valuable thing you've learned over the years working for coffee companies? I think what I've learned the most is, as I referred to before, um, the, the power of the human connection that coffee enables us to make, even down to the end consumer. We just hosted two uh, exporters from Brazil, one from Colombia. Uh, these are producer partners of ours. We did a series of uh, events in Milwaukee, Madison, and here at the Andersonville store last night, and and really giving our customers and also our own employees the opportunity to meet our producer partners. And in this case, all three spoke speak English perfectly, so it's very easy to just um, let those conversations happen. I don't have to do any interpreting. But the the relationships that we have with our producer partners and um, they're obviously very important to us. We rely on them to get the product that we need. That's the core of our business. But then having those people visit us and, and get to meet our employees and, and our customers, both wholesale and retail, is really special to watch because that's something that you don't normally get to do as a consumer of any product. You don't get to meet the farmer. 
you don't get to meet the the person responsible for getting that product out of the producing country and um just watching those interactions happen um it has been very special just this past weekend but i think overall uh i really really value the the many friendships i've developed in the especially coffee industry and the places i've gotten to travel to often very remote uh places that tourists don't go to and the people i've gotten to know who are very different from us and they have just very different realities and we're all connected through this product and the thing i also want to um clarify is that it's not a relationship in which we have something that they don't and we're we're giving them um charity or something it's it's an equal business relationship because they're producing something that we want and so they're even though they are in developing countries and often have um what we would perceive as lower standards of living they are important and equal business partners for us and and they know it and if they are producing high quality coffee um they they know that they can command a premium for that so we um we treat them as such we look, think of them as partners we know that we're in this together and that um the the success of our business really relies on being able to source those coffees year after year from a lot of the same producers and because we've continued to grow as a company we've been able to diversify the number of supply chains that we have in in many of these countries and that's also been fun as um is growing with a lot of these producer partners um you know we celebrated our 20th anniversary with uh in working with a fair trade co-op in Chiapas, Mexico, a co-op of indigenous Mayan producers who belong to the Tzeltal group uh, and they have come a long long way since we first met them in 98 but uh we purchased two containers of coffee um which is basically uh 70,000 pounds. Wow. <laughs> a lot of coffee. Yeah. Um and you use artfulness as a way to differentiate your brand and we love the design of Collectivo's packaging and merchandise. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that has developed over the years? Sure. We have the fortune of having an amazing creative director uh named Kevin Callahan who actually was my cafe manager when I worked at our then flagship cafe at the end of 2000. Kevin is actually our longest standing employee uh within the company and had a number of different roles before he moved over to um full-time design and I won't say graphic design because he initially did everything by hand. He was a studio art major at University of Wisconsin Milwaukee and has just such a great eye and when he started doing art for for the company it was drawing by hand and photocopying. and so the company sent him to learn graphic design and now he just clicks 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 and things just magically appear on the screen <laughs> and but he's got this really stunning ability to come up with all these different images and designs and interpretations really quickly and he just churns out one master work after another and it just blows me away because he it's so easy and effortless for him and So I've had the fortune of working with Kevin both when I um was with the company for 7 years in the 2000s and then since I've come back. And so one of the things that we do is for our featured farm line, um that's kind of our reserve top of the line coffees, we only sell them at our cafes and they're once a month. So we just had 
the featured farm for October last week, the Columbia Nariño. Kevin and I worked together on developing a brand or an image for the for the package for the label, and we often uh, turn to textile designs specific to not just the country but that particular region that the coffee comes from, or designs that you see on buildings um, in local architecture, and it's just something that a small little thing that I like to do uh, with Kevin because um, it's a way of kind of taking art and graphic design, making it connect to the product that's inside the bag. Um, and most people might not notice or they may not really make that association, but some do. And we've had people say, oh yeah, I recognize that textile pattern as being from that place. And that's just one of the many things that Kevin does to really keep our brand connected to origin. And Al, in your experience, how have coffee trends changed over time? And where do you see the coffee industry going next? Ooh, that's a really good question. And we could have a whole other podcast session <laughs> on that. But, you know, the specialty coffee industry has matured, uh, I would say, over the past five years. Um, it's not a new thing anymore. Uh, people... A lot of consumers, even in um, smaller markets, know that there's this thing out there, whatever they want to call it, but it's just better tasting coffee. And and I do credit Starbucks for really paving the way for the rest of us, uh, particularly here in the upper Midwest and in Chicago in particular, which was their first market outside of the Pacific Northwest. Um, Starbucks really introduced a lot of people to this idea that there was better coffee out there than what we knew of before and what we drank ourselves or our parents drank or grandparents. Um, there just wasn't anything really to differentiate before. And, and uh, Starbucks drove that concept of specialty coffee to a lot of different places that otherwise wouldn't have seen it. Uh, I think now you see a lot of consolidation in the industry, um, a lot of uh, local roaster retailers that are being bought by bigger companies. Um, that's started happening um, both in the U.S. and also on a global level. Uh, you also see specialty coffee starting to go into different regions of the world that didn't have it before. So similarly as we in North America got it starting in, let's say, the 90s, maybe the second half of the 90s, this is now happening in East Asia, in the Indian subcontinent, in the Middle East, and even in uh, Latin America in certain um, metropolitan regions, Sao Paulo, Brazil, Mexico City, Bogota, Colombia, Lima, Peru, that uh, are, are capitals of, well, aside from Sao Paulo, capitals of coffee-producing countries, uh, but with, um, with growing middle classes um, and people who are aware of specialty coffee. And so you're in these countries, you're seeing uh, specialty coffee retailers pop up, um, and they're featuring the coffee's from their own countries that used to only be exported. And so that's been interesting to watch as well. And uh, there's just, there's more consumption going on and the production is is still there, but we're, we're facing a lot of problems. Uh, climate change is the, a huge one that's affecting producers all over the world. And uh, it's not just uh, rising temperatures, but it's also irregular uh, precipitation rains when they're not supposed to happen or they didn't happen in the past or um, uh, pests that have um, become more of a problem because of climate change. And so 
or different um, fungi uh, that attack the, the coffee trees. So, so we're being faced with kind of a, a bigger sort of systemic challenge to coffee production while, consu- while pr- consumption is, is continuing to increase on a global level. And so there's going to be continued pressure in, in many of these countries to, um, for producers, especially small-scale producers, to be able to um, produce under more difficult conditions. Um, and on, add on top of that, the commodity market, which is quite volatile and it right now is at a very low point, which does not help coffee producers, of course, because um, they're by and large getting paid less for their coffee, particularly if they sell to uh, to the local market, rather than if they're connected to the specialty market based on the quality of their coffee and can command a higher premium. Um, so there's just a lot of pressures going on in specialty coffee, and they're quite concerning. There's also a big issue with um, the sort of next generation of coffee producers. You have... Um, existing producers who are aging and their children are not wanting to stay in coffee because they've seen how challenging and difficult it can be, how um, uncertain coffee is as a, as a means of livelihood. Sometimes you can make decent money off of it and other times, including right now, you, you may not be able to. And so, you know, it, it's, I'm not concerned that there won't be coffee because there is still lots of production in, in certain countries like Brazil uh, Vietnam is actually the second largest coffee producer in the world, even though it's almost all commercial grade coffee. Um, but I'm I'm concerned about some countries that have long-standing coffee traditions, like Costa Rica, really continuing to drop because of different reasons. Um, but one of them being that there just aren't enough people to continue producing coffee because it's not viable, or they can make more money off of selling their land to real estate developers, such as what's happening in Costa Rica. And you just have less land that's being used for coffee production. And Al, how do you take your coffee? Is it the same every day or do you like to mix it up? Um, so I, I drink my coffee black. I had to train myself to do that back in the early 2000s. Um, and it was not easy, but I, I just finally got used to that flavor. And of course, now I can't do it any other way um, because I, I want to taste the the unique characteristics of that coffee from from the country, but even from a specific region within that country, because you can have multiple regions within one origin uh, with different flavor profiles. Um, I, I'm kind of old school. I like uh, French press. I like coffee that's uh, brewed on a, on a um, batch machine with a filter. Um, the Chemex, uh, method is is something that i um, sometimes drink we have a brewer um, in the cupping room at our headquarters in milwaukee where you just stick the chemex um, uh, carafe the glass carafe under this machine and it and it replicates the pour over method like if you actually had a barista making that coffee for you um, with the amount of water that it it sprays and the the time in between and um, it's very precise so I like coffee kind of in, in more traditional ways. Um, I don't drink as much espresso as, as filtered coffee, but uh, there are times when I do want to taste what uh, a, a specific coffee um, is as an espresso rather than as a, as a filtered coffee. And I guess um, I don't really drink that many lattes or cappuccinos. I don't drink 
uh, regular milk, um, and we don't carry lactose-free milk. So if I want something like that, I'll have to order with soy or, or um, we have oat milk now at our cafes, um, in addition to almond and rice. Sorry, coconut. Um, soy, almond, coconut, and oat. And so um, if I'm kind of feeling like something a little bit different and maybe um, want a um, coffee that's not as strong, I'll, I'll get something with um, oat milk. And is your palate refined enough where if we did like a blind taste test, you'd be able to tell us what region mm, a coffee is from? I hope I could. <laughs> uh, there are some that are that are a lot more obvious than others, but they're like, let's say Central America has a number of different origins, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Panama, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala. Um, I might be able to say this is a Nicaragua versus a Guatemala. Um, there are certain flavor characteristics that often jump out in specific origins, but mm, that might be a little tricky. But let's say a natural process Brazil versus a, a wash Kenya. Yes, definitely. Um, a wet hulled Sumatra come next to a natural Ethiopia. Yes, I can do that. I should be able to do, do, do to do that after all these. We'll things. have to, yeah, come over and test you at the cafe. Maybe make that a fundraising <laughs> the, event. The next of some podcast, kind, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, can I'll taste it anyway? Um, <laughs> so we know you've only been in the neighborhood for a little while, but if you had the opportunity to trade places with another Andersonville business for a day, who do you think you'd choose, Al? Well, being new to the neighborhood, not just uh, our our company, but me personally, I. Um, I'm just really starting to explore, uh, but I did walk past uh, Reza's, uh, the Persian restaurant, and it caught my attention because I really love uh, food from uh, Central Asia, Middle East, um, all the different uh, spices, the, the complex flavor profiles. Um, I'm, I think I'm more familiar with Turkish food than I am with Persian food. Um, I, I have been to Turkey and um, would love to go to Iran and learn more about the food there. And so I would have to say right now, Reza's, even though I haven't actually eaten there, just the idea that they have this buffet. Um, I'm definitely going to go one of these times. Uh, I'll be in the Andersonville neighborhood uh, more regularly, at least once a month going forward now that we have the cafe open. And um, so I look forward to to trying out Reza's and, and also other restaurants uh, here in the neighborhood. And I've already eaten at several just within the past couple of days. And I'm very impressed with, with the quality of the food that I've had so far, but also um, just the, uh, all the options that this neighborhood offers and the ease of getting around and um, having such a, a unique feel to this area that that really speaks to me, and I think it's maybe my age, um, my demographic, but I, I really, really like this neighborhood and look forward to being here more often. Well, thank you, Al, for being here, and thank you for listening to Always Andersonville, the podcast. For more information about Colectivo, please visit collectivocoffee.com. Show notes on today's episode can be found at andersonville.org. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Always Andersonville, the podcast, is engineered and edited by Andy Miles in Studio C at Transistor, a gallery, shop, performance, recording, and teaching space located at 5224 North Clark Street. Have your own podcast idea? 
The studio is available to rent. Please call 872-208-5877 or stop by the store for details.